The Durable Restoration Company is a proud sponsor of Berguin Wright Presents. At Durable Restoration, they specialize in exterior historic restoration services. All of their craftspeople and artisans are employees and trained in-house using traditional materials, tools, and techniques that are tried and true. They have a long list of historic landmarks across the nation that they are proud to have helped preserve for future generations. For all your upcoming restoration needs, contact Durable Restoration at DurableRestoration.com or call toll-free at 1-877-340-9182. In the early years of the American Revolution, there were many ways the colonists in support of the rebellion sought to undermine the authority of the British crown desperately clinging to power in the colonies. From legendary uprisings like the Boston Tea Party to the lesser known but still seismic actions like the Stamp Act Rebellion in Wilmington and Brunswick Town, the colonist tactic at the start of the war was to loosen Britain's grip little by little. In North Carolina, one of the final actions to sever that tie was the taking of a fort that had already endured so much before the war ever arrived. Standing on the banks of the Cape Fear River, this fortress was built to guard against the type of attack that will eventually pour over its walls and signal a colony ready to fight back. Hello and welcome to Berguin Wright Presents Outlander in the Cape Fear, a podcast series telling the stories of North Carolina's Cape Fear region through the history of one of its oldest historic sites. My name is Hunter Ingram. I'm the Assistant Museum Director for the Berguin Wright House and Gardens in Wilmington, and I'm your host for this podcast. This season on Berguin Wright Presents we are back to exploring the real North Carolina history depicted in the global phenomenon that is Outlander. The historical fiction book series from author Diana Gabaldon and the Stars series that adapted it for television. The beloved story follows Claire, a World War II nurse who time travels back to 1743 Scotland, where she meets and eventually marries a devoted Highlander named Jamie Fraser. Together, the pair land in the American colonies and North Carolina on the eve of the Revolutionary War in the 1760s and 70s, and soon find themselves players in the founding of a country. On this episode, we are focusing on the Season 7 premiere of Outlander, and an event that, while never seen on screen, threads through the entire season opener. In the premiere, Claire who has been arrested and charged with murder, is pulled from the jail in Wilmington to attend to a mysterious passenger on a ship called the HMS Cruiser, anchored off the Cape Fear coast. In time, 
we learn that patient is the very pregnant wife of Royal Governor Josiah Martin, the final royal appointed governor of the colony of North Carolina. Josiah Martin is occupying the cruiser after fleeing Newburn in Tryon Palace, the capital built by his successor, William Tryon, who we covered last season on this podcast. Martin is locked in a battle with a growing contingent of colonists, hell-bent on revolution, and their latest target is Fort Johnston. Throughout the episode, Martin and his crew speak about the deteriorating scene at the fort, and by the end of the episode, he is informed it has been taken by the rebels. Martin tells Claire that the ship is soon to set sail because of the fighting, and the loss of Fort Johnston doesn't slow down his planned departure. Again, we don't see Fort Johnston on screen, nor do we see what happens in the aftermath of the rebels' siege. But this fort was real, and the attack on it stands as a key moment in North Carolina's colonial history at the start of the American Revolution. So what happened on the ground at Fort Johnston? Why did it cause such anxiety in Governor Martin? And how did this moment set the stage for the revolution in the Cape Fear? We're going to answer those questions and more on the season premiere of Bergwin Wright Presents Outlander in the Cape Fear. To talk about the history of Fort Johnston and its role in the early stages of the American Revolution here in North Carolina, we are joined today by Chris E. Fonville Jr., a local author and historian. Chris, thank you so much for coming back on the show. Hunter, it's always a pleasure to be with you. And it seems like we've done this a few times. We absolutely have, and it's always a pleasure as well. Now, we get to talk about something very interesting today, something that I have personally never talked about on podcasts that I've done. But it's something that is incredibly central to the season premiere, the season seven premiere of Outlander, and that is the history of Fort Johnston in those opening months, opening year of the American Revolution. Now, in the season premiere, we see Claire interact with Royal Governor Josiah Martin. Last season on the show, we talked about Royal Governor William Tryon, and he was a huge figure on the show. Now, I don't think we're going to see Josiah Martin too much more in the Outlander series, but it does give us an opportunity to talk about the final royal governor of North Carolina. So what do we know about Josiah Martin and what brought him here to the colony? Well, he's born in Dublin, Ireland, came of age in Antigua in the West Indies, where his father was a wealthy, influential landowner, property owner, uh, which included slaves. Mm-hmm. They grew sugarcane. His family was a very powerful uh, family had been since the since the 17th century in England, served the king in, in various roles. So Josiah grew up a, a very privileged young man. As most of these royal governors did. Yes. You know, they're just not being plucked from, you know, poverty and being given these roles. These are connected people. Right. And his father and particularly his older brother Samuel were very powerful politicians mm-hmm. in the British government. They were movers and shakers. Much to the chagrin of his father, Josiah uh, joined the army in the first year of the Seven Years' War, 1756, and rose to become a lieutenant colonel in the 22nd Regiment of Foot. 
but because of ill health and for financial reasons, uh, just prior to the revolution, he sold his commission, which officers could do at the time. Um, but then he was just kind of treadmilling his way along and um, asked his brother if he could help him find some position somewhere. And it just so happened that there was some shuffling of some royal governors in New York. For example, as you know, William Tryon was sent to New York. Mm-hmm. And uh, Lord Dunmore was sent to Virginia. So anyway, Josiah Martin got installed as the governor of North Carolina. He didn't arrive until August of 1771 because of some health issues. And consulted with Tryon in New York and finally made his appearance in Newburn in August of, of that year. And, um, and it sort of inherited some issues that Tryon had been dealing with, not the least of which, of course, was the war, the regulation. Exactly. That occurred at Alamance. That previous, previous spring. That's right. Josiah Martin coming in, he comes in at a very pivotal moment in, in North Carolina's young history. 1771, yes. we're going to take him all the way up to the revolution as we see him in Outlander. He is... In this one episode, a very anxious man. He's dealing with a lot by the time we get to this moment in 1775 that we see in the show. But what was he like as a royal governor before the revolution? Was he good at keeping temperatures lower in North Carolina? Or did they continue to ratchet up once he takes the handle from uh, trial? Well, well, he tried. And reportedly, he was a very jovial, amiable uh, person. People liked him. But, you know, he inherited some, some key issues, not the least of which was the uh, dealing with property taxes, which the people who lived out on the frontier, the western counties, had opposed, in part, corruption and so forth, that led to the, the war of the regulation. He did the best that he could, but he was just on the wrong side of history. Yeah. Uh, things continued to worsen, and uh, in all of the colonies, of course. Yeah, it's not just North Carolina. No, not we just see North that Carolina. on Outlander, but right. it's it's everywhere. Right, it's everywhere. Uh, so it's spreading like wildfire, and really the tipping point in North Carolina was when North Carolina Provincial Congress was formed in Newburn in August of 1774, and this, of course, was independent of the Royal Assembly, and um, they elected, as you know, delegates to go to the Continental Congress in Philadelphia, and of course, this just infuriated Martin. Uh, who declared it an, an illegal or a paralegal uh, assembly. But the, you know, the Provincial Congress uh, continued to meet. And uh, then there was a confrontation uh, between patriots uh, and the governor in Newburn at Tryon Palace, where, of course, Martin was living, mm-hmm. um, over the issue of the dismounting of cannon in the backyard uh, of the palace uh, in May of 1775. Of course, uh, Martin claimed that they were dismounted because the wood carriages were rotting and they need to be replaced to celebrate the king's birthday, 37th birthday in June. But the insurgents, as he would have called them, the motley mob actually is how he (laughs) defined them, uh, were suspicious of his actions because in all of the colonies, uh, the governors were doing all that they could to protect valuable resources, meaning muskets and gunpowder and musket balls and so forth. They thought he was arming himself. Or at least taking away their arms. Exactly. Right. And they considered the arms their arms, just like the people in North Carolina considered Fort Johnston their fort. Mm -hmm. 
Well, of course, Josiah Martin, the chief imperial agent in North Carolina, vehemently opposed. Yeah. It's the property of the king. That's his of job, the technically. Right. I mean, but yeah. the people said, well, through our General Assembly, we have raised the funds. Mm-hmm. The Crown has donated, too. But we've raised the funds for the construction of Fort Johnston. So it's our fort. These are our resources. So, uh, you know, it reached critical mass in the spring of 1775. And that's when he comes from Newburn to what is now today the Southport area. Right. He feared for the for his personal safety, but he feared for the safety of his wife Elizabeth, who and that's a whole new an interesting story, not new, but an interesting story. She was the first daughter of Josiah Martin and Mary Yemens from Rock Hall, Lawrence, New York. Rock Hall was the name of their plantation. Okay. He also was from Antigua. Martin's ruled in Antigua. So, in effect, uh, Josiah Martin married his uncle's daughter. So, he married his first cousin. And she married a man with her father's name. Right. Yeah. And her brother was Josiah Martin Jr. So, it gets confusing genealogically speaking. That's crazy. But bottom line is he married his his first cousin in New York. She's living in Newburn with him. They have eight children, four of whom die. Mm -hmm. Of course, this is fairly typical. And she's highly pregnant, as the term was in those days, and fearing that the, as she called them, the pernicious vapors of North Carolina, of the South, the summer heat and humidity would claim yet another child. She was only too glad to be leaving Newburn when he put her on a ship on May 29th to send her back to Long Island to live with her father. But unwilling to give up his lost colony, for lack of a better term, so he rode an open carriage with Archibald Nielsen, a very good friend and personal assistant, to Cross Creek to try and gauge the sentiment of loyalists in the upper Cape Fear River Valley, which is the subject of so much of Outlander. Absolutely. Because the largest ethnic minority in North Carolina at the time, of course, were Scots, mm-hmm. mostly Highland Scots. And they were, of course, they had professed loyalty to the king. So the ultimate plan was perhaps to, if necessary, use military force to regain possession or control, royal control of a colony that he felt slipping away from him. So he was there for just a day, really just overnight. And then he and Nielsen continued their travels down to Fort Johnston, where he arrived on June the 2nd. He intentionally bypassed Wilmington and Brunswick Town. No residents ever made mention of the royal governor making his way down the coast to Fort Johnston, which was the only serviceable British fortification in the colony at the time. There were three, but the others were in disrepair, and that was the only one that was uh, still serviceable, so to speak. Well, let's talk about Fort Johnston, because this episode, again, we don't see Fort Johnston, but as I mentioned, Fort Johnston sits in what is now Southport in the Cape Fear area. If you've never been to, to the Cape Fear, I encourage you to come to Wilmington, obviously, but also see Southport. It's beautiful. It overlooks the river. Mm-hmm. It's really a magical place. Those salubrious breezes, as they say, it was founded right. because of. But Fort Johnston predates Southport. And so that being the only thing in the area, why build a fort right there? What was the What were the advantages of building a fort right there near the mouth of the Cape Fear River, because it's it's farther downriver than Brunswick Town, which was our first community in 1725, and it's 20-some miles away from Wilmington. Mm. Uh, the strategic location. Uh, it was three miles from the mouth of Old Inlet, the main entryway into the Cape Fear River. And in fact, when they began building the fort, New Inlet 
was not yet even created, not until 1761. Mm-hmm. So as early as the 1730s, the Crown had asked then-Governor, Proprietary Governor George Burrington, to explore the possibility of putting in uh, a defense that would protect Brunswick Town and the plantations that are now being built up and down the Kaffir River, as well as trade and commerce. But it wasn't until 1744, beginning of King George's War, that building a fort became a necessity. And it took a while to even get to a point where they could build it. Oh, they didn't even begin building it for another four years. Yeah. Not until the late spring or early summer of 1748 did they even have money to begin building the fortification. And what happened? In September of 1748, the Spanish attack, just as Gabriel Johnston, the royal governor at the time, uh, feared. So in 1745, the Crown authorized the construction of the fort that they would call Johnston's Fort. And construction began. royal governor at the time. That's right. (laughs) Began in earnest in 1748, but then it's attacked by the Spanish in September. Well, the Spanish came across the bar at Old Inlet ostensibly to kidnap slaves that were building Fort Johnston. But as it turns out, that day in early September 1748, it was a Sunday, so the enslaved laborers had been taken to Brunswick Town to rest and to worship. And so the Spanish, in two sloops of war, continued on upriver to attack Brunswick Town, as you know, and ended up occupying, pillaging, and looting the town for more than two days before they were driven out by a militia force led by William Dry. So that precipitated the construction of Fort Johnston, that attack. But it was beset by uh, funding. It's always an issue, of course, and was not even garrisoned until 1750. And at the time that Josiah Martin arrived in 1775, is garrisoned not by British regulars, but by provincial troops, militia, basically, who were from Virginia and New York and uh, North Carolina. So these, this is not a regular British Army force. So Martin arrives, and really, there are more cannons in the fort than there are soldiers defending it. And when you say garrisoned, you literally mean staffed, people being there. That's right. Yeah. Defenders in the fort. Yeah. There are less than 15 defenders in the fort. And Despite. so as uh, the, the fever of revolution increases in the lower Cape Fear, Josiah Martin sees fit to take refuge on board the HMS Cruiser, a British sloop of war uh, in the river, which he considered his best place of refuge at that point. He doesn't even feel safe in the fort anymore. And we know that, again, unwilling to give up royal control of his colony, you know, it's his duty to hold on to the colony. He schemed and plotted to retake control of North Carolina from the insurgents by military force. And Fort Johnston was would be his base of operations for uh, a military invasions of, uh, invasion of North Carolina by way of the Cape Fear River. Now, he could not depend solely on a loyalist army, a provincial army that he proposed to raise. He wanted regular British uh, forces. Yeah. And so, uh, along with other governors of the southern colonies, um, William Campbell in South Carolina, Lord Dunmore in Virginia, they're all sending correspondence to London to implore the government 
to endorse an invasion of their colony with regular British forces. And therein is where the power of the Martin family comes into play. Samuel Martin and others are able to convince the secretary of the colonies, Lord Dartmouth, and the king. Ultimately, the king has to approve of these operations. The king, King George III, will ultimately decide that North Carolina would be the site of the launching of a southern campaign in 1776. Martin's request was approved, and regular British forces would be sent from Ireland to be led by General Charles Earl Cornwallis, and from Boston, led by General Henry Clinton, and they would converge on the Cape Fear to be here by mid-February. All things went according to plan, where they would be met by a provincial army comprised mostly of Highland Scots that would assemble at Cross Creek, organize, and then march to Brunswick Town, where they would meet Cornwallis and Clinton. And on the way there, for those who listened to our first season of this podcast, you know that our season finale ends with the story of Morse Creek Bridge, which stops that campaign early in its tracks. And so it's all tied together. One thing we have not seen on the show is Morse Creek, and, and we might not see it, but it was a huge part of what the Martin that we meet in this episode is planning at this stage in the war. He sees value in Fort Johnston. Now, let's do a little bit of myth-busting for people who have watched this episode or, or those who know a little bit about Martin. In the episode, Claire, our main character, she's a healer, she's brought on board by Martin so that she can tend to his pregnant wife. Now, you said she's been sent to New York. So That's is there right. any evidence that she was ever on the HMS cruiser with Martin? Never. Never. No, okay. No. She's at her father's plantation in New York, Lawrence, New York. But it makes sense because... But he does suffer from gout, okay. So he could still need a... He could still need a healer. He would still need a healer. Well, and it also makes sense because Claire is very devout in her dedication to her skill. And she is very concerned with what fate might befall her here in the Cape mm-hmm. Fear because she's on trial for murder. And yet, she is still very kind. She's very compassionate in her concern for Martin's wife. It's a nice way to bring Claire into the happenings of this family, even if she was not technically on the boat with him. And it also puts her in the crosshairs of Josiah Martin. I say this on every Outlander tour I give. Claire and Jamie Frazier are impeccable in their timing for finding themselves in the right part of history at the right time. Not everybody's going to end up on the HMS Cruiser offshore of Fort Johnston in 1775. Although it was well packed with a lot of loyalists. There you go. And so it's, it's that kind of thing that makes Outlander very dramatic. But the HMS Cruiser, Martin, where we see it anchored in the Outlander series, that was true. Martin was out there planning his next move in these opening moments of the American Revolution. That's right. The Patriots learned that he was attempting to rally loyalists to the King's standard. It didn't help that in January of 1776, Governor Martin sent out a printed proclamation to the loyalists in the Cape Fear River Valley, which, of course, was intercepted by the Patriots. So when they, in effect, got his playbook, but to usurp what he was planning to do. They planned a preemptive strike against Fort Johnston. Now, initially, they planned to merely occupy the fort, believing that Martin 
was trying to encourage slaves to rise up against their owners. Remember that Lord Dunmore in Virginia had actually put together a regiment of African-American troops called the Ethiopian Regiment. Uh, but there were rumors, and this, war, this propaganda worked to the benefit of the Patriots, that Martin was trying to encourage a slave revolt in North Carolina and that slaves were being mustered in Fort Johnston. So the initial intent was to merely seize the slaves and occupy the fort and hopefully take off with at least some of the lighter cannons, the swivel guns and the smaller caliber cannons that they could use themselves. Basically take it out of his arsenal. Exactly. Yeah. Right. And Martin even went so far as to remove the heavier cannons from their carriages and put them along the riverbank underneath the protection of the guns of the cruiser. So he went to great lengths to do what he could to prevent the fort from becoming an advantage to the Patriots. I mean, he didn't know that once they occupied the fort, they could use the cannons to fire on the cruiser sure. where he'd taken refuge. So the, there was a lot of planning that went into this operation. And there were as many as 500 Patriots from across the Lower Cape Fear who descended on Fort Johnston in the early morning hours of July the 19th, 1775. And once they got there, there were no slaves. And the cannons had been dismounted. And so they decided to burn the fort and deny the governor his base of operations for this Southern campaign. So they did in a firebombing raid that lasted throughout the early morning hours and maybe two ways. I think another group from Bladen County came in after sunrise and finished off with the first group led by Cornelius Harnett, John Ash, the leaders of the revolutionary movement in North Carolina. Harnett we've seen on the show too. So these are the men that that are trying to recruit people like Jamie for these actions, trying to, as I said in our intro, loosen the grip that the British crown and its officials, like Martin, had on the colony. Absolutely, right. And they did that. They denied him that base of operations. Now, it did not, of course, end the proposed invasion of North Carolina. That ended with the Battle of Morris Creek Bridge. In February of 1776. In February of 1776. You know, the next year, but early on. Now, one other thing that we see Martin use in this moment, Jamie references that he has declared martial law. Mm -hmm. What would martial law have looked like in the colonial period, and what is he using it for at this moment as he knows that these patriot forces are descending on Fort Johnston? Governor Martin never declared martial law in North Carolina. It's been used sparingly in American history. The first time was actually at Jamestown in the 17th century, but then... Just prior to the revolution, as a result of the Boston Tea Party, martial law was declared in Massachusetts, which, of course, um, was a substitution of civil authority by military authority. And so that's what happened in Massachusetts. Now, there were rumors that Martin had put out word that he was going to burn Brunswick Town and burn Wilmington if necessary, that once the, uh, the armies got to him, the mouth of the river that, you know, he threatened to do that, but he never declared martial law. Interesting. Now, it might not be that martial law was declared, but in this episode of Outlander, there are some fact versus fiction things that we've talked about, but Martin is very clearly aware that he has lost Fort Johnston. He's notified of it by the end of the episode that the rebels have taken Fort Johnston, the insurgents have taken Fort Johnston. 
What did that look like? What did they do after they burned Fort Johnston to keep it away from Martin? Well, there's nothing left. I mean, they literally burned it to the ground. So now his base of operations is the cruiser. But in a way, you know, he didn't really need Fort Johnston. Once the regular forces arrived in February uh, and the provincial army, the loyalists, never got here after their defeat at the Battle of Morris Creek Bridge, they really only needed a landing point, which could have been Bald Head Island. It could have been Brunswick County. It was almost symbolic. Yeah, yeah. it was. But, of course, the Crown was just infuriated that uh, the, the colonists had had the audacity to destroy the king's property. And I don't think they gave it much thought as to what the repercussions, what the Crown's response was going to be, because they had been successful in other protests against the Crown, like the Stamp Act protest. And, you know, in effect, they, they won that. So I don't think they were too concerned uh, and then militarily, it was a it was a smart move for them. It's a victim of war. You know, this fort that took decades to get off the ground. It was, you know, the subject of an almost attack by the Spanish. It takes forever. And then it finally becomes this flashpoint with Martin and these patriots trying to gain ground over the other, even so early in the war. I mean, again, that campaign that Martin is pulling together will come to a close very quickly at Morse Creek. It's going to be a place of real sacrifice for Scottish Highlanders. And so that's why all of this is very central to the Scottish Highlander story. But it's not the first thing you think about when you think about colonial North Carolina history. Mm -hmm. You don't think about the fort that is not even in one of our main towns in the area. Again, Southport doesn't exist yet. It's not going to exist until the next century. And so it's it's a really interesting place for this show to begin, but something that was very important to what I imagine was the waning power that Martin had over North Carolina. What happens after this to him? Well, you know, m- most historians claim that the American Revolutionary War in North Carolina began with the Battle of Morris Creek Bridge. It did not. It began with the destruction of Fort Johnston. That was the trigger event for the war that was yet to come. And there was some fighting, some ship-to-shore fighting later on in the uh, fall of 1775. Now, Martin would remain on the cruiser awaiting the incoming British forces, which, as I mentioned, did not arrive until the spring of 1776. Then they, in retaliation for the destruction of Fort Johnston, raided up and down the Cape Fear River, as well as the defeat of the Loyalists at Morris Creek Bridge. They raided up and down the Cape Fear River, but ultimately went south to attack Charlestown, and Martin went with Cornwallis's forces. But after that, uh, he returned to New York, where uh, his wife Elizabeth... They called her Betsy, died in 1778. Martin did join Cornwallis's invasion of South Carolina in 1780. He was with Cornwallis's army in its Carolinas campaign. Uh, he was with Cornwallis after uh, the Battle of Guilford Courthouse when Cornwallis made his way down the Cape Fear River Valley to Wilmington, where he spent 18 days. Came through the house that we're sitting at right now at the uh, Bergwin Wright House. And Martin probably was here as well, but ultimately returned to Rock Hall in New York to be with his motherless children. And uh, eventually, because of health reasons, left there and went to London. And uh, he was there until 1786 when he passed away. Do we know if the child that Elizabeth Betsy is pregnant with at this time 
Is it one of those that survive, or is it one of the casualties that you mentioned? You said they have eight kids and four die. Yeah, four survived. She did give birth to the child, but, you know, I don't know the genealogy of the yeah. Martin family very well. To know no. if that one right. actually right. survives. Right. I just thought it was curious that, you know, her story comes to an end pretty quickly after we see her in this context. Right. Um, she was only 38 when she died. Yeah. Although older than Martin. Interesting. Yeah. Oh, he married young, an older woman. Look at that. Yeah. Now, you, you said that Fort Johnston was the only serviceable port, correct? Yeah. At the time. It's burned at this moment in history around the time that, that Claire and, and Martin are interacting. And, and so it's not there anymore. But is there any history after that with Fort Johnston? Is there any piece of it left? Oh, oh well, no. After the burn firebombing raid, there's nothing left. I mean, they were burning even the guardhouses. And by the way, uh, Fort Johnston was made of um, tapia or tabby which is a concretion of oyster shells and lime uh, and water. And uh, it's poured literally into wooden cribs. And when it hardens, it creates cement-like blocks. But like cement, it weakens over time. And so when Martin arrives, uh, this old tabby work, which had been built in the 1750s, was, was crumbling. And said every time you fired a cannon off of the parapet, uh, portions of the wall would crumble. So it wasn't in great shape. And surrounded by a palisade or a fence. And of course, inside you would have had barracks and quarters and you know warehouses and so forth. And so anything wooden was completely destroyed. But the war continued. Um, the war continued for, what, another six years. So the General Assembly, North Carolina's General Assembly, did provide funding for the reconstruction of the fort. Unfortunately, the the records are frustratingly silent on the details, but we do know that a Captain Robert Ellis was there for uh, most of the war, and he did make some some gains in rebuilding the fort. So after the war, whatever there was of Fort Johnston eventually was ceded by the state of North Carolina in 1794 to the federal government. And then it became a U.S. Army installation. And again, uh, construction after the war was, you know, uh, hit and miss. But by the War of 1812, uh, it had taken on, a, you know, a new life. There was a, a substantial fort built there again. And pieces of that, along with some rebuilt things, are there today. Um, you can go down to Fort Johnson and, and see symbolic again some of the places that it was. The officers' quarters, which were made of brick, are still there. They were constructed in 1809. And along the riverfront, you can actually see some of the old portions of the tabby walls, which are where the fort walls were at the time. And the, the riverfront has eroded to that point. So they didn't fall off into the river. That is where the walls of the fort were. And in fact, the colonial fort is much further off in the river. Than, than you might imagine. But the site, the, uh, the low bluffs overlooking the estuary, that beautiful view that you have of Battery Island and Bald Head, they're still there. And, uh, and um, Southport uh, you know, is, is a beautiful place. And uh, you may well know that after the war, destroyed Fort Johnston became sort of a base of operation for river pilots. And they and their families lived there. And of course, the river pilots would 
help ships get into the harbor and out of the harbor. And so um, a village emerged around the fort that became known as the fort. Didn't have a name until 1792 when Joshua Potts, who was a Wilmingtonian who used to go to the fort to enjoy the salubrious ocean breezes, Mm -hmm. uh, which were considered so healthy, he was the one that asked the General Assembly to commission the village as a town and it was opposed by Benjamin Smith. A, a short-lived governor. That's but right. 1810 to 1811, who I read some things where some of his colleagues in uh, in Raleigh, in the capital, let them name his town after him because they didn't think it was going to be much. They thought it would be kind of embarrassing for well, him. Well, I, I think he finally agreed to allow for the commission of the town because they were going to call the town Smithville. Smithville. Right, which it was until... 1887. When it became Southport, an attempt to create another Wilmington in a way, to create a southern port lower from Wilmington. Um, And that's what's there today. I mean, we always say it. We can talk about history all you want, but I encourage people, when you come down and have your Outlander tours of Wilmington, or you're just in Wilmington, go down to Southport. And you can see that view. You can see another reason why not just the beauty of it, but the strategic view of it. It looks upriver, but you can also see down to the mouth of the Cape Fear River, that old inlet. You get a real sense of why Fort Johnston, however long it took, they put it there. We always talk about how there is that that bridging of fact and fiction when it comes to Outlander, but you know, Claire and Jamie chose well to be part of the Scottish Highlanders that come through the Cape Fear. Just as we have chosen well. Exactly. That's why we're all here. That's why we're here. Well, Chris, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. I'm glad we could talk a little bit about Fort Johnston um, while Claire and Jamie interact with it before their next adventure. Well, I enjoyed it as always. Until next time. Until next time. Thanks, Chris. Thank you, Hunter. That's it for this episode of Berguin Wright Presents Outlander in the Cape Fear. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll be back every two weeks this summer with new episodes as the new season of Outlander airs on Stars. Until our next episode, be sure to subscribe to this podcast by searching Berguin Wright Presents on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, please rate and review us which can help more people find the podcast. You can also follow the Berguin Wright House and Gardens on all social media platforms, including Facebook and Instagram, for the latest on what we're doing at the site. As a nonprofit, this podcast and all the exciting projects done at the Berguin Wright House are made possible by donations and community support. Please consider making a donation or joining our membership program with exclusive perks and tours. All the money raised goes towards the furthered education and preservation of Wilmington's oldest historic site. For more information, visit our website in each episode's description or at bergwinwrighthouse.com. Thank you so much for your support. This podcast is written, edited, and hosted by me, Hunter Ingram. We would like to take a moment to thank Durable Restoration Company, for sponsoring the podcast this season. And we'd also like to thank Rachel Ross for our cover art design and the National Society of the Colonial Dames of America in the state of North Carolina for their continued support. See you next time on Bergwin Wright Presents Outlander in the Cape Fear. 
The Durable Restoration Company is a proud sponsor of Berguin Wright Presents. At Durable Restoration, they specialize in exterior historic restoration services. All of their craftspeople and artisans are employees and trained in-house using traditional materials, tools, and techniques that are tried and true. They have a long list of historic landmarks across the nation that they are proud to have helped preserve for future generations. For all your upcoming restoration needs, contact Durable Restoration at DurableRestoration.com or call toll-free at 1-877-340-9182.